Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Very busy programme ahead of us tonight. Lots to get through between now and 11pm. And a full house, as they say. Let's begin by saying hello to our reporter, Terry Flanagan, who joins us in studio. Terence, how are you getting on? Getting on great. Great to be back. Ain't any Launa's also in studio. It's a full house today, ain't it? Yeah, and social distancing is a thing of the past. <laughs> all, we're all sitting on each other's knee, practically. <laughs> Get off me, you brute. <laughs> that kiss wasn't for you, ain't it? was for Niall. She's here, too. I'm very flattered, Derek. Absolutely. I'm glad I came in today. Absolutely. <laughs> and Richard home. Collins is in Malahide. Richard, how are things there? Yes, everything's fine out here. Good, good, good. Now, later, we'll be hearing about an interview you conducted with Josh Davies. He's the digital news editor at the Natural History Museum in London. And it's all about the new stroke discovered species from 2023. Yes, well, new species are being discovered all the time. And in fact, it's not just that new species are being discovered. It has been found increasingly that many species, which we thought were individual, turn out to be multiple. Things like uh, pipistrelle bats, for instance. We thought there was only one pipistrelle bat. But in fact, we now know that there are three. So you're getting this division of nature all that. Of course, we're losing species at an alarming rate, but we're also producing new species, or discovering new species. And a giant penguin, I believe, has been discovered. Or was it always there? Well, the giant penguin, if long gone, I think it was the tertiary, actually, by the time it disappeared. But it was a huge animal, a very, very large thing, three metres high and and, and a huge, heavy animal. Uh, I wonder how on earth it managed to, to get by, because it would have to hobble out and lay an egg and incubate that egg for weeks on end. He was a kind of an avian whale, as far as I could see. And uh, it seems to me it's the wrong way to go if you're a penguin. Flightlessness (laughs) and becoming a whale. You're just not qualified for the job. I'm a big fan of penguins, Richard, and I would have loved to be able to see that giant penguin. It sounds absolutely amazing. I think the way you described it there as being like a whale of of a penguin, it kind of it's apt. And I think that that's one of the reasons probably why it didn't survive. It'd be very susceptible to things like climate change, be very susceptible to predators. And we often find with a lot of those species, they tend to evolve to become smaller because they're they're better at surviving. The largest penguin today is the emperor penguin, which is still a, a very large bird, but nowhere near three metres. It uh, would have been an astonishing thing to see. Of course, unlike most birds, the penguin wouldn't have had to bother about flying. So at least when you're in the water and you're in that sort of aquatic environment, you can afford to get larger. If that bird was still had the power of flight and was able to fly, then there's no way it could get as large as three metres in terms of its body size, just, just too big for it to be able to fly effectively. It cashed in its chips. That was the great gamble that these flightless birds take. Drop flying and let's see what the benefits are. And penguins have been very successful. There's about 16 species of penguin, all more or less confined to the southern hemisphere. There are a few on the equator, but it's been a very successful formula down there. So the big giant penguin, well, it wasn't a totally ridiculous idea to go flightless. But uh, he paid the price. Apparently the wasps have done very well. Something like 690 new species have been described over the past 12 months. Yes, remarkable. Now they're not the kind of... We have two very common wasps, the common wasp and the German wasp. We have six species in Ireland as far as I know. That's the uh, social wasps. And people think of 
when they think of wasps they think of the social wasps the ones in the in the black and amber jerseys but there is a whole host of other wasps solitary wasps Cuckoo wasps, they're the wasps that lay their eggs in the nest of another wasp. There are parasitic wasps, a very great many parasitic wasps. They lay their egg on, on the, uh, the body of another species. So there's a great profusion of those. I think in Britain there's several thousand on the list and it increases all the time. We have a, a long list of wasps. We have loads of these solitary wasps. Anyway, we'll hear more about that later on in the programme. But first, Terry... You want to refer back to an item on last week's show? Yeah, I was listening last week and now you were mentioning about the nesting birds, early nesting birds. You mentioned about ravens and and members of of the crow family. Well, I I don't know if it's common or have you come across it a lot in Birdwatch Ireland, but I've seen our blackbirds and they are nesting in the garden at the moment. And she seems to have disappeared quite a lot. The two of them feed in the garden, they feed on apples, but in the last week or so, it's mostly him. And I have a funny feeling because I've been watching her and I think they're nesting. Is it a little bit early? It's certainly on the early side, yes. Um, Blackbirds and also robins, they will try to nest sometimes earlier in the year, so January, February into March. Those early nesting attempts, they very often fail, unfortunately. The Mm. likelihood of success is much lower than if they nest in April or May or into June when the weather is better, the days are longer, so there's more opportunity to find food. You do find in suburban and urban gardens and also in, in areas where there's rich farmland and so on, some of these birds will nest and they may be able to thrive, especially if people are putting food out in the gardens. I know you are, Terry. Mm. So they have their apples, they have their seed. So at least it is a source of food for the parents. However, when you get into February and into March, they're often the coldest months of the year. You get a drop. Yeah. And those chicks, they're not able to regulate their own body temperatures for the first couple of weeks of life. And then if you get a cold spell at night, there's nothing those parents can do to keep them alive. So it's a bit of a risk. The parents invest quite a bit in trying to raise those chicks. Um, most often it doesn't pay off, but if it does pay off, then they may get two or three broods later in the year as well. Do you, remember, do you remember the blackbird down in Limerick that nested in the, the Christmas, Christmas tree? tree yeah. And the huge, they had a huge big Christmas tree and they wanted to take it down on Nullock the Mon whenever Christmas was over and there was a pair of blackbirds nesting in it and it had to stay up until the end of January and they, they raised their chicks because we, we all kept an eye on it and we had it on, we featured it. it must be 10 years ago now I don't know how long it was but that actually did work and they did it and it was right in the middle of the city and there was lights on the tree and I'm sure that kept the blackbirds warm and everything but it was gas they opted to, to seize the opportunity and that was they had the nest built by the 6th of January that, that's it you see what you have with the Christmas tree so it's a conifer so it's evergreen so it's attracting some sort of insects but more importantly it has shelter from the rain uh, and then those lights they do provide that heat and the lights on outdoor Christmas trees can actually make a big difference for birds I've been several times within Dublin City with different Christmas trees over the year you'll see pied wagtails roosting in their hundreds all along the lights in the Christmas trees too and it's because of the warmth that's absolutely mm. it Well that was O'Connell Street was famous for that wasn't it going back 20-30 years ago with the, the willy wagtails as we used to call them but going back to the blackbirds, I, I wondered, would it be a case that it might be younger birds, inexperienced birds that might be nesting earlier in the season and they're going to get, you know, whacked with this, with the cold weather that comes afterwards? It, it could be, yes. So they're maybe slightly naive. They haven't learned the tricks of the trade yet. Mm. And blackbirds, they have maybe four or five years to get this right. So a bird like a robin maybe will live for two or three years. A bird like a wren, if it makes it the age of two, it's doing well. Mm. The blackbird has a little bit more room for error. They can make these mistakes earlier on. Uh, and it's sometimes it pays off. If we have, if we have a mild late winter early spring those birds could do really well 
But if we get very stormy or very cold conditions, then the rug is pulled out from underneath them and those chicks or eggs may not survive. Yes, yeah, see, I, I wouldn't be sure if these blackboards are the blackboards that were there last year. I have a pair of blackboards in the garden every single year for the last 30 odd years. But of course, they're not the same pair. So they're being replaced, but I can't actually see when they're being replaced. So the pair that I'm looking at now, although they are adults, I don't know if they were the same adults that bred in the garden last year. But maybe one has taken a new spouse. Maybe yeah. it's the same male and a new missus mm. or vice versa. Or does that happen? It does happen, yes. They're, yeah. they're by no means monogamous. They don't mate for life. Very few of our birds do. Um, swans famously do, but birds like blackbirds don't. They get a new partner um, each year. Mm. Um, it could be the same partner by coincidence, but they're very happy to pair up with a different one. And sometimes even during the season, if one of the pair, pair disappears or isn't pr- producing very well or pr- performing very well, they may take another one. Yeah. Yeah. So you could get that. So that yeah. even, even though the two of them live and don't die, they wouldn't necessarily have new partners. And it's very hard year. to tell the individuals apart. The mm-hmm. males essentially... they have essentially, a white feather or they have Exactly, a or they've been ringed or by an ornithologist. Yeah, yeah. The males look pretty much identical. So they're, they're, they're black, black feathers with a sort of lovely orangey-yellow beak and ring around the eye. Mm. The females can be a bit more distinctive. The females actually vary more in plumage than the males do. You'll see different patterns of streaking on the chest and on the throat because they're, rather than being black, they're very dark brown. Yeah. But it's not uniform. You will see changes in the pattern of the throat. Some might have paler throats, some might have darker throats, a bit more grey in the plumage. So the females are more variable. So with, with persistence and with, with patience and good observation skills, a good pair of binoculars, you may be able to tell the difference between different females in your gardens. Richard, Richard probably knows the difference. Richard, have you any blackbirds in your garden and can you tell whether they're the same ones as last year or not? Well, only by putting rings on them I could tell that from time to time that this one had a ring and was probably the one that we had there last year. Something about multiple clutches. It is, uh, there is a, things that lay several clutches in the summer. There is a central clutch that there are most likely to succeed in bringing young from. Uh, but then there's a kind of risky clutch, early clutch is a kind of, they probably, they know, they, well, they don't know in our sense, but they know that they will probably not succeed. But it's worth a shot. If they might get a bird, a fledgling or two away from it successfully, it might survive. Or a very late clutch, the same. It's, uh, it's a speculative venture on their part. So would the they have se- two clutches? Would they have three clutches? I mean, if things oh, were really we, going well, would oh, yes. blackbirds have three clutches or is two the limit? Well, two is the norm, but you may get a third. Some birds lay, uh, skylarks, for instance, can lay up to four clutches. So it's, um, it's a question of risk. Uh, okay, the centre one is the one you really have to concentrate on. You will probably get a chick or two. Remember, a year on, there will only be two of all the chicks alive. One for the male parent and the other for the female parent. So that it's a, it's a cutthroat business, but you might just score by having an early clutch. It's worth the chance. Yeah, because if you get two away at all in the whole year, you've replaced yourself and that's mm. what anything does. Uh, one thing I was interested to know, and Niall, you might be able to help me, or Richard, is these pair that are in the back garden, they appear to me to be a pair and they appear to me to be faithful to each other. They come together, they feed together. I've watched as a starling, I've actually videoed it, a starling came into the garden to feed on one of the apples that I put out uh, and one of the blackboards immediately shot down and got rid of the starling. So really, what I want to know is, are they 
faithful or do they remain faithful to each other throughout the winter? Well, if they're nesting as they are in your garden, then that pair bond has been formed. So they are defending their the, each other, they're defending the, the eggs or chicks. And the but does out. that pair bond, does that go back to the previous summer, to the no. previous year? No, it doesn't, no. So the fact is now that they have they've obviously mated if they're nesting now, so that bond has been, strength, been formed now and be around for at least a few weeks. But if they weren't nesting at this time of year, no, that bond wouldn't be there. What happens is that, like most of our birds, the pair mate during the summer, they might raise their chicks then they go their separate ways. Blackbirds, in common with other members of the thrush family, because the blackbird is our most common thrush, they'll often form loose flocks with others, other blackbirds, other types of thrush during the winter, moving wherever the food happens to be. So the blackbirds you see in your garden in the winter, they may not necessarily be the same ones that nested there during the summer. Mm. But then once that pair bond has been formed, yes, they will be more or less faithful to each other. And they would see that starling that, that, that was chased away, that would be seen as a potential threat. It's com- competing. It's going to take food from those chicks, makes their survival less yes, likely. Yes, their, mm. their food, yeah, but yeah. I I was always telling people, oh, you only ever get one robin in your garden in the winter. But last week, when it was really cold, and I've only a teensy weensy garden, I got mistle thrushes, I got blackbirds, and I got two robins at the same time. And one didn't run the other away. Was that just because they were so hard up? that had the energy to chase each other or have they formed a pair bond? Should I watch out for the patter of tiny little little, little feathers and feet? I'd suspect the latter, Aina, because... When they, the, they might be mating, They yeah. could be because yeah. robins will nest early. Sometimes we've even had records of them nesting on Christmas wreaths on doors in December. It's the most Christmassy scene you could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so the, the fact that they were tolerating each other, that suggests to me that they may well have formed a pair bond because actually when the weather gets harsh and food is scarce, that's when the robins get most aggressive. Or so they're um, even nastier to each other. Exactly, then, because yeah. it's life and death. And robins, unlike the vast majority of other birds, they keep a territory year round. So even in the depths of winter, they don't want any other robins coming into their patch. So the fact that they're tolerating each other would suggest to me that there's a good chance that they're, if, if they haven't made it already, they're in the process of getting together and doing it. But, but those territories that they maintain, they're often side by side. So there might be one robin in my garden and there may be another robin next door. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the hedge is the boundary between the, the e- yeah, e- Exactly. Yeah. But um, traditionally, isn't it said that the robin chooses its mate on St. Valentine's Day and that it's the female that chooses the male. Oh, it's always the female that chooses the male. That's not just <laughs> Robin's territory <laughs> and Valentine's Day. But I mean, with the t- change in climate and temperature and everything yeah. else, I mean, your blackbirds obviously have chosen each mm. other. I know they're not Robin's, but they're in the same group, you know, and yeah. maybe they... I thought it was all the birds that did it on Valentine's Day, not just the Robin's, but there you go. One of my favourite <laughs> to see in the, in the winter or any time of the year is a lovely bird called the bullfinch because they are monogamous and the male and female are inseparable, even in the depths of winter. So they're two that you will see together. And the the bullfinch is an interesting bird because it's, I suppose it could perhaps be mistaken for by, for a robin from a distance because they have this lovely pinkish yeah. chest. But it's robin's got that black head. Black head, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And this white patch on the, on the lower back. So maybe they, uh, if you had a fleeting glimpse of one, you might think it was a robin. But actually, when you get a good view, they look quite different. And, I'm uh, sure Richard doesn't believe in Valentine's Day and robins <laughs> getting it off with each other then. Do you, Richard? Well, now, uh, the, the other monogamous species is, of course, the stone chat. And you see the stone chats together in winter and in summer. The bullfinch uh, raises an embarrassing memory for me because I I was once uh, uh, talking to a group of teachers and I I held forth on singing and all the rest of it and then a fellow put up his hand and said uh, I I highlighted the fact that the bullfinch doesn't sing he has an old squeaky thing you know and I said here's an example now of a bird with lovely colouring doesn't need to sing his colours do it all for him do you see and this fellow put up his hand at the end of it and says why is the bullfinch such a great singer you see so I said oh my god is this fellow being asleep all the time 
but in fact, years later, reading a book uh, on uh, history of ornithology, I discovered that German foresters go around to bullf- or used to go around to bullfinch nests and take all the babies out and play the tin whistle to them and teach them tunes. I go they on, do, you're pulling their legs. No, they do this in the Hearts Mountains. And Queen Victoria had a bullfinch that sang God Save the Queen. Tsar <laughs> um, Nicholas had one that did the Tsarist National Anthem. They are actually excellent singers. The man was right. I was totally wrong. Except, you see, bullfinches stay so close together that they whisper sweet nothings to each other. Mm. He sings all right, but he sings very quietly and we don't hear it. They're not that well liked by gardeners at this time of the year either because, am I right in saying that? Because of the blossom. Yes, they, 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 they nip off the blossoms and they, they, they take away the fruit. That, that's right, and there used to be a bounty on their heads in Ireland and in other European countries because they would come into fruit orchards, particularly mm. for things like apples, apples pears, and, mm. plums as well, and they would eat the blossom because it's rich in nectar, it's yeah. a great source of food for them, all sorts of other um, nutrients in there as well. And of course, if they nip off that uh, that flower, then no fruit will be produced on that particular from that particular flower. And if they do a whole tree, then it's all gone. And uh, thankfully, that's the, that that uh, bounty on their heads is a thing of the past. They're completely protected by law now. They've learned their lessons. That's what you're saying. They well, don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> There's only a lovely bird, and it's it's the it's the bird. It's the Christmas bird for so many people in northern and eastern Europe as well. Because don't they're... mention Christmas now. Well, it's I know it's so it's over, but still, we, you know, but that would only be the male bird, surely, because they exhibit this sexual dimorphism where you can tell the two them apart very very easily a bit like we talked about the blackbird earlier on yeah but the, the reason the reason why I mean the, the sort of festive colours being this, this lovely red or pink the robin in this country and in Britain and a few places as well that is with us all year round in our gardens in the winter but in parts of Scandinavia and in Eastern Europe it's so cold that those robins all migrate down to the Mediterranean but the bullfinches stay behind there's no point in having a robin as your Christmas bird if there's no <laughs> robins in the country at the time so the bullfinch gets that role there anyway I want to say hello to Jim Wilson now from his home in Colvin County Cork hello Jim hi Derek Hi, team. How are you doing? Uh, Jim, the guys were talking there about early nesters. Have you got anything nesting there at the moment? Well, I don't have any sort of direct evidence of an actual nest, but boy, there's been a lot of activity, even over Christmas. Uh, now, maybe the, the, the cold snap might have put a stop to their gallop, so to speak. But yeah, there was great tits going into the, the nest boxes here in the garden. Uh, the, there was birds in full song. It was almost like a spring dawn chorus over Christmas in the milder days that we had. Uh, song thrushes, blackbirds, robins—they were—they were all at it. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, within a stone's throw of where I'm sitting, there isn't uh, a bird that has attempted to nest anyway. As I said, the really harsh, prolonged spell we've just had may have put paid to, to any of their early plans. This, of course, Jim, is the time of year when everybody you meet talks to you about the grand stretch in the evenings. And uh, we notice that the birds notice it as well. Um, and also their hormones notice it, or at least their hormones are produced because of it. And this puts them into breeding mode. So over the coming weeks, we're going to see and hear more singing as these hormones are triggered by the length of day increasing. And that's what gets them into breeding mode. And then in, in a couple of months' time, that's going to be why we have our dawn chorus really kicking off. Um, and it becomes really brilliant in the first half of May, particularly. And from now on, we're going to be ramping up to that as the days get longer and longer. Absolutely, but you know, I mean, thrushes in particular are famous for breeding almost any time of the year. Uh, feral pigeons will do it in, in suburban and urban areas as well if the conditions are right. Uh, others are, are more rigid about waiting for, actually waiting for spring when the weather is, you know, more reliable. So it should be more reliable. It's not anymore, but should be. So yeah, so that, that that's all really, really good. And of course, at the moment, 
the, the, the garden birds coming in is phenomenal this year for me and I know I've, I've spoke to others that, that they watch their garden birds this winter has been a particularly busy year for a lot of them compared to previous years I mean, you look out the window and I can see up to 20, 30, sometimes even 40 birds where normally I only see maybe a dozen, 15. That's in a relatively small garden, by the way. It's not looking over the fence or anything like that. So it's, it's, it's been really either a very good breeding season last year, which is possibly the reason, most likely. Uh, and also maybe there's a shortage of, of food outside. It's hard to tell. Jim, you mentioned there earlier on about the small birds coming into the garden and going into the nesting boxes and that. Do you think was that a case of roosting during that very, very cold snap we had there about a week or two ago? Or is it that they're kind of sussing out these nest boxes for early breeding? Yeah, I, I, I feel it's sussing them out for early breeding because uh, the roosting boxes for sure and, 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 you know, it's been discussed on the programme before and Terry, I'm sure you're, you're well aware of the fact that the wren, the number of wrens that can fit into a nest box uh, sometimes can be quite staggering, you know. Uh, but, but the thing is when you see them active in the middle of the day like that and there was one great hit in particular and it was, it was checking the size of the hole in the entrance. It was pecking a bit at it, you know, and then it went in and it came back out and then it went in and it was all very tentative it was looking around all the time so it, it that that behavior to me is is much more like uh, you know looking looking around at, at the real estate to see whether it would be suitable to raise a family in late you know at some stage now jim you're here to tell us about the great big garden bird watch which you can hear on rt radio one next monday from 3 p.m we're asking our listeners and indeed our panel to look out the window and tell us what they see this is a kind of a snapshot in time of the birds in your garden on your balcony if you live in an apartment or in a community garden if you don't have a garden space yourself. We just want to know what you see at this time in this place. Now, Jim, we're going to be putting a link to the live stream from your garden next Monday so people can actually see what's going on as you talked to us live on air. That's correct, Eric. Uh, with the Hopefully the... the, the technology gremlins will stay away but yeah we're planning to stream uh, live uh, some of the action and I hope there will be action <laughs> hard to tell because we don't know what the weather's going to be like or anything like that but for the whole day uh, I'll have a live stream of the comings and goings to my bird feeders for people to to check out every now and again and we'll report in on on, on that uh, throughout the day as well I ha- I'll have that set up we'll have a link uh, on the website Side. It will be announced as well throughout the day so that people can pop in and see and compare maybe, you know, what I'm getting with what they get. Because all around the country, of course, every garden doesn't get the exact same birds. There are some birds like the robin, which is ubiquitous. It's, it's found in almost 100% of gardens every year. But then as you move down along uh, the, the line of popularity or abundance or whatever, you, you get uh, differences like people in the west of Ireland, people up a mountain, people in the city. So it, it'll be lovely just to compare and contrast. And I know we'll all be jealous of somebody else's garden because they'll be getting something that you never get or you rarely get and vice versa. And actually make us all kind of maybe value uh, what we're seeing in front of our very eyes because not every garden in Ireland may be seeing what you're seeing. Absolutely. Like Eric Dempsey has the 
great spotted woodpecker, but then he lives in County Wicklow. So, Niall, you want to say a quick word about our relationship here in this project? Yeah, I think it's great that we're all talking about garden birds and monitoring our garden birds and talking about citizen science because this is an area where the listener, the Mooney Goes Wild listener, can really contribute to conservation science and knowing how our birds are doing and informing our decisions for years to come. So this is sort of a, a snapshot version of our annual Irish Garden Bird Survey, which we have thousands of people all over Ireland doing. It runs from the end of November through to the end of February. So there's still plenty of time to take part in that as well. You've got um, almost a month left to do that still. And uh, please do take part and enjoy it because it's great fun as well. I love doing it myself. And that's next Monday, right here on RT Radio 1 from 3pm. So Jim, we'll talk to you then. Yes, absolutely. Looking forward to it, Derek. So once again, it's the Mooney Goes Wild Birdwatch Ireland Great Big Garden Birdwatch next Monday on RT Radio 1 from 3pm all details on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney now Terry Flanagan you were out with our old friend Rob Gondola recently Yeah you're talking about County Wicklow I was down in County Wicklow the garden county of Ireland I was down to see Robert Gondola uh, Robert is the senior science officer with the Herpetological Society of Ireland where he conducts research on the ecology and conservation of reptiles and amphibians in Ireland and apart from that he's also become involved in the Living Classrooms project that has recently been set up this is where he will visit schools and help create ponds in school gardens to encourage outdoor learning and an appreciation of the wildlife around us. So we went to one of his ponds in Lara in County Wicklow. Okay, Terry, come over here and just mind where you're walking. This Tripping, is one of your, your ponds here. It is, yeah, and as you can tell, it's not your conventional pond. Uh, it's quite muddy around the edges. It certainly is. We're sinking into it to us here. Yeah, so this pond has actually been designed to take the overflow from excess rain. So that's where you can hear the flowing water, like the still water coming down off the hills here. And this design, this pond has been designed actually to capture it and hold on to it. So it behaves like a pond, but it's also slowly releasing water back in to the surface water system, which is essentially the river on the opposite side of the road here. Now, where we are, we're in County Wicklow. We're quite high up. I presume this soil here is quite acidic. Yeah, it is. And a lot of the water would be acidic because it's coming down off the buggy, the heatland mm-hmm. up, up the top. There is clay here, which would be basic or neutral but it's it's generally the water is acidic because it's running through very acidic soils further up so it, it j- tends to make the whole habitat behave in an acidic manner. Now when you have an acidic pond like this surely that dictates the species of plants and animals that would be in it? Yeah absolutely so particularly with plant life um, you get a lot of generalist plants obviously will grow anywhere but you will get a lot of things here that specialise in, in being able to grow in, in pH of water that can be as low as like 4 Is that know? what this would be here? Yeah four? so the last time it was um, the, the stream that, that feeds in here when it overflows was kick sampled the guys who did the macro invertebrates uh, sampling um, also took a pH and they said it was at 4 mm. now that would be less when there's been a lot of rain because it flushes through the system very quickly Yeah, um, it would be closer to neutral but yeah it can get down as low as 4 well, As I'm standing here I'm uh, sinking, sinking right into it here <laughs> at the edge yeah. Tell us what animals we'd find here now. Okay, so like you get the big ones, you know, that you would think about when you get the pond. So in springtime here, you get a lot of common frogs. They breed right. in, in the in the deeper bits where the water is going to be permanent, but it's still quite shallow. Um, so along the edges, frogs. A lot of here. frogs. A lot of frogs spawn here. I think the last time we counted last year, we had over a hundred clumps just in one given section. And I think. 
between this and, and like the sister wet area slightly further down, there was probably likely a thousand frogs breeding. Now that doesn't include the immature animals that are still in the environment that don't come back to well, spawn. Well that so. that's great because frogs are doing so poorly in other parts of the country as you know better than anyone. Yeah absolutely and because again we're next to a river and we're next to a busy road, mm. road fatality can actually be quite high. Mm-hmm. You know, So like we've estimated that it's, it's, it could be potentially as 5% of the breeding adults moving across the roads every year. Really? Yeah. yeah now when we look across it here it's very very still. I notice it's covered by lots and lots of leaves. When these leaves fall into the pond do they cause any damage or do they change the ph or yeah they can do so depending on the type of tree and the type of leaves like they could they can actually acidify it so a lot of the pines the needles would can acidify the water and if there's not water circulation or if the plant uh, life isn't already colonized and, and doing its job you can end up with a, a situation called black water where the water becomes extra it's generally in very heavily shaded ponds so it's shaded it's full of pine needles the water has a black kind of smelly aroma to it when you're in like pond dipping like we do for when we're sampling and you end up with very very low biodiversity looking around the pond it's very very healthy it's very very clean i'm looking at the lichens on the trees there are absolutely tons and tons of lichens well that will just tell you how wet it is here you know so the environment and also how unpolluted it is yeah for sure and so like again because of the nature of the environment we're in the water's coming downhill it's being filtered by the grass so the importance of having the hill not being eroded to within an inch of its life. So mm. there's not a lot of soil that gets washed down here. Any soil that's picked up is generally filtered out by the grass before it even makes it in to this swampy margin we're standing in, before it gets anywhere near mm. the deeper parts of, of the water. So there's very little chance that you get agricultural runoff or anything coming in here because it tends to be filtered out beforehand. So we're, we've never had an algal bloom in this mm. pond since it's gone in. You know? This particular pond here, now it's quite shallow. Will that dry out in summertime? Most of it will, except for the very deep bits, the deeper parts. And when I mean very deep, there's nothing here deeper than a metre. And that's fantastic for things like newts and frogs. Well, I was going um, to ask you next, do you get many newts here? Yeah, we do. Yeah, they are here. They wouldn't be as high now in number as, as the frogs, but they are around. And um, when the water disappears, the frogs and, and the newt Fs will move into the deeper water. But generally, it's not deep enough to support fish, which would be a major predator of, yeah. you know... And I presume that in summertime too you'd have lots of dragonflies and damselflies here as well. Yeah, we do. We've got, we, we get the, the hawkers around, so like the common hawkers early yeah. in the year. We've had the darters, obviously, and like they'd be up foraging up the top of the hill. So you do see a lot of them around. Um, what we've also seen, which is unusual given it's a pond and it's not a stream habitat, we've had some banded demoiselles. Oh, lovely. They're beautiful. In foraging as well, which is unusual because they don't tend to like to be away from the moving water. Yeah. Um, but they're absolutely incredible looking animals. So. Now, ponds are very special to you because you study frogs and toads and utes and that. But you've got another string to your bow, so to speak, because you've become involved in a new project. Explain a little bit. Yeah, so we've been running for almost a year now. It's called the Stepping Stone Ponds Project. So this is a sister group to the Stepping Stone Forest Project, which was initiated by the Daughter Action Group. So the idea came up was when these pocket forests went into schools, the schools were like, okay, what do we do with it? And so Pocket Forest it, yeah. is an organisation, so, so, No, Pocket Forest is essentially a mini forest, so it's the size of a tennis court with thousands of trees planted into it, very dense, of all native species. So there's like shrub layers, hair layers, and then the big trees themselves. And it's it's all in to do with the methodology by a Japanese god called Miyawaki. Right. And he said, like, you can create these stepping stones within the environment of habitat so that the wildlife can actually use them while they're moving across the landscape. 
So you're creating a habitat where none existed before. Right. Uh, and it's not there to be the be-all and end-all of habitat. It's a stepping stone. It's a corridor. Ensure, yeah, as a corridor. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a dispersal and connectivity corridor. So when the schools started to get this, they were like, well, this is incredible. What do we use it for? And they're like, living classrooms. Get the kids back out into nature on when we can have the good weather, have the kids outside, take their class in these areas. And the way they, they're designed by the stepping stone forest guys is that there tends to be like a little horseshoe shape in the middle and they'll put a willow arch and a living willow arch so it's part of the forest and the kids walk through the arch and then are in this open space now surrounded by their own native woodland and it's incredible and like even with two years growth like some of these forests are incredible but then you know schools are brilliant and a lot of them will be going for for you know classifications with, with the green flags and they say well what else can we have that would be great for wildlife and naturally you're going to say give them a pond so yeah. you've now you've got a woodland pond ecotone so that's where two different habitats meet and then generally they're surrounded by grassland within the school or like a hard boundary with the school so we've got multiple habitats now all meeting each other um, and that's how the stepping stone ponds project came and then i was asked to come in and consult in the ponds so what and you're actually doing is you're going around schools now and you're putting in ponds for absolutely schools. yeah so we're putting ponds into schools where possible we're hooking it up to their downpipes so it, we're actually using the water collected rainwater on the roof collecting it into whether it's a water butt or it's directly connected to the pond and then we fill it using that water well that's so, great because yeah one of the questions i was going to ask you was what water do you use do you use tap water i would have thought we, no we, we do if there's no other alternative but we prefer to have the ponds yeah. with a sustainable source of rainwater and you know schools are not small buildings there's an awful lot of roof space so you can collect ridiculous amounts like thousands of litres over a wet weekend so you know we try to encourage the schools to when they're going to consider to have the pond to also consider some form of rain storage as well and the schools are brilliant because you know primary schools all the kids it's all back in the nature curriculum you know kids learn about it you have the council engineers come in and they explain to them this is why you guys collecting rainwater is so positive for us because it's alleviating pressure on the surface water system which means the pipes aren't full to capacity which means the local streams aren't flooding and bursting their banks which is relieving pressure on households so there's all these little knock-on indirect yeah, effects from just having, yeah for everybody mm-hmm. so um it's really positive even more positive is that we found a funder in aws which is amazon web services so their um, initiative is to fund and it's not just us they fund multiple organizations in the amazon in communities grant so they fund us now to build these ponds for schools at the moment it's restricted to where they have a footprint so it's Talloch, Clondalkin and then Fingal, so Finglas and Blanchestown. But it's, it seems to be working well. They're very supportive of the project and they also really like the idea is that when we go into a school and we, and we talk to it first obviously with the teachers and then obviously boards of management and insurance companies and stuff, then we give it to the kids and we say, you designed a pond for us and then we'll come back and we'll make it or you can come out and help us while we're making it. So we've had like a pond in the shape of a jigsaw piece. We've had... Another one in Blanchestown beside Manellian Park and Skull Oliveira, we've had this lovely, they had a couple of really big dead trees. So we used the pillars of the dead trees as a gate because obviously there's a protective fence around a lot of these ponds or most of the ponds. So it's this kind of almost semi-fantastical realm where the kids walk through the trees into this lovely pond and, and like we, we landscape it a bit but we try to keep it as wild as possible the fencing is chestnut fencing so there's big gaps the kids can see the pond from the outside of them so it all everything's you know to have a very low footprint low impact on the environment but so the kids can always see the water so you know there's never a desire to get over the fence to see yeah. it they can always see it no matter how small they are you know how long so. does it take a pond to settle in then before they can actually go out and enjoy it yeah so usually the ponds are, are cracking on 
from as soon as um, the water goes in. Like we've seen them colonised by aquatic beetles within a couple of hours. That um, quick? Yeah, yeah, they can be super, super quick. Obviously, it will depend on the weather. So when we were building one in Skullwira there in Blanchestown, we were doing that in the drought and the heat wave in June. And the water hadn't even started to go in yet. Like we'd literally just... just um, started to fill the pond and we had birds in drinking of it you know we went back the next day to put them in the fence and, and there was already like mosquito larvae and daphne and things that had obviously birds had carried eggs in on their feet or whatever overnight and things had hatched and started to develop like so you're looking at 24 hours that's incredible know? That's incredible. because I was thinking it was going to be a lot longer than that what's the reaction then of the school children the kids love it. The kids love it because we give them a lot of ownership from the get-go. We ask them to help us design it. We go through the nature that we will hopefully attract. We get a lot of information because you talk to the kids and you go, where do you live and does anybody have X, Y and Z species nearby? And then you find out that someone has a pond over the back wall mm-hmm. or within 50 metres of the school. And you're like, okay, well, there's a very good chance that these are going to colonise the new pond. You know, So the kids get all excited about it. Ideally... The ponds are dug in the clay and we leave them to colonise naturally. But a lot of these school grounds in particular tend to have a lot of builder's rubble or it's unsuitable soil, so we have to use rubber liner. And then to offset that, we absolutely chock them full of native oxygenators and other uh, other plants, other native plants that will use up the nutrients quickly and kind of kickstart the pond into functioning straight away. So the kids are sitting there with their feet in the water while they're doing their maths class, all sorts of brilliant stuff. So the kids kids get so much out of it, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. What about secondary schools? I was thinking maybe for leaving cert biology for ecology it's an ideal habitat for them to study they don't have to go and get a bus and travel off to wherever to see a habitat they have one here in the school grounds yeah and that's it so we, we were over with um we, we were over in, in one of the educate togethers in in blanchestown and what we found was they specifically wanted the pond so that it would link in with their new horticultural module right for transition year students right and again once it's in then for fifth year like most of them do their, their ecology modules in fifth year yeah. but they can go out and they can do their quadrats in the non-horticultural area they can do their quadrats then in a bit of rough grass beside it but then they can also do like pond dipping the leaving cert is geared that once they're testing something that is they can collect quantifiable data and yeah. then analyse it then it's good to go you know and that's what the ecology modules are for and it's really good and even now junior cert science yeah, yeah, yeah. Has, has these kind of practical um, ecology elements to it now as well so it's given the schools something extra to give to their TY students which is great like the horticulture module is brilliant teaching them how to grow their food you know Is there much maintenance then on a pond once it's been put in? It should be very low maintenance so what we tell the schools is leave them alone for at least two years let the oxygenators grow in let everything else establish. We try and harden off, like where we have the chance, we try and harden off all the plants. So, you know, we, we make sure that they're hardy because a lot of the plants that you can get, unfortunately, they're coming in from abroad and most of them would be growing in polytunnels. Yeah. And, you know yourself, aquatic plants are not cheap. So, like, we try and harden them off to make sure you treat it a bit like a tomato plant go, so yeah. that when you put them into the water, there's no sort of climate shock. So they're hardened off and they go in and then we just leave them to do their own thing. Then we tell the school, so anywhere between two to five years and then you divide your pond then into quarters and then you manage a quarter every year never ever manage the whole pond in one year because you'll shock the system and something's going to lose out and generally that's the wildlife in the system or the system will be out of balance so it can take you anywhere between six to ten years before you've managed your whole pond in its entirety from the day you've put it in so like it's a long term you know it shouldn't be management intensive it should be long term lots of little bits one of the drawbacks I might think of when I'm thinking of putting a pond into a school campus for instance is 
the children are free or on holidays in say June, July and August they had the three months that the pond is most active and that you're going to see most things happening am I right or wrong with that? Uh, no, ponds change you know, as the wildlife changes as well so like kids love to see frog spawn so if mm. just, a lot of these schools will be in well established areas where there is frogs in people's gardens so if they get the frog spawn in the kids are happy then for spring summer then will bring in dragonflies so if they're even missing from like with primary schools July and August they're not missing too much the pond is being kept well, um, the healthy yeah. they'll run into yeah, oh, September even October, October yeah, yeah, yeah for sure and, and, like, and butterflies of course yeah and butterflies as well so a lot of these guys in their marginal areas or the damp edges around the pond will encourage them to put down cuckoo flower and stuff like that yeah. you know so they've got um, orange beautiful, and yeah. stuff yeah, yeah beautiful so the pond is looking after itself because it's going to be fed by rainwater that's being stored or it's hooked directly to the downpipes it's still Ireland we still get rain in June, yeah. July and August so it keeps it topped up so even but it's like, a great idea too that yeah. you're using the, the natural rainwater rather than chlorinated Water. Yeah, for sure. Like it's only it's only been in one or two cases where we've had to actually have somebody connect us to the hydrant to fill it. Yeah, um, and that was more of a time issue rather than like for us. Yeah, rather than long, it was in the long, in the long term. term, they could have just left it alone. It was ready to go and let it fill up over rain, you know. But mm-hmm. like we're just as impatient as the kids are. We want to see it done too. So you hope to get out now over the winter and do a number of other schools, is that right? Yeah. So we've done five. We're hoping to have seven done before the schools close for the Christmas break. And that would be really good for us then to go back to AWS and say, listen, this is our proof of concept. It works. There is a demand for this. There's a huge amount of learning for the kids, you know, learning opportunities and also, you know, to keep a lot of this nature learning on the school campus because, again, hiring coaches and stuff is expensive, yeah. you know, and it, it sucks out a lot of funding that could be yeah, used I've elsewhere. And you know yourself. But yeah, so the, so the plan is we'll finish the seven, we'll go back to AWS and we'll say, look, we've done this. Maybe we should with your obviously approval can we expand this into other parts of Dublin and Ireland as well because like schools are just crying out and in a lot of cases the students will want to dig it and create it themselves we just go and we, we supervise which is brilliant and then we we talk them through the process like making a pond isn't difficult it shouldn't be difficult and it's not mm. sometimes you just kind of need to do a bit of hand holding at the start so by the end of 2023 you have seven schools completed what's the plan for next year yeah well seven was brilliant given we only started it's more or less in June of this year. So if we had a full calendar year, I think we could easily get in two a month. I think we could be looking at 20, 24 next year. That's Absolutely. incredible, isn't it? Oh, it'd be wonderful. Like, And, and, and then it, hopefully in the years to come, maybe to expand it outside of Dublin, around the country. Yeah, for sure. And and again, like we don't have to be doing it. It's just to get everybody to get a hold of this idea that living classrooms are a fantastic way, you know, to educate kids about nature, to get them out into it, not just looking at it on screens or learning about it. And then they can use it, whether they're small four and five-year-old kids right up until they're leaving cert students, you know, they're multifunctional. We've seen all the all the, the science published now about how spending time in a mini woodland or near water is good for your mental health. There's a huge amount of, of positive assets to having, like um, stepping stone ponds or stepping stone forests on, on your school grounds if you have the, the space to do so. Thank you very much indeed, Terry Flanagan and Rob Gandola. You can see some pictures on the website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, can you imagine a penguin the size of a giant panda? We spoke about it at the top of the programme. Then imagine 
huddles of them waddling about the place. It seems, if you go back 50 million years ago, large penguins were quite the thing. The fossil of such a giant creature was discovered in New Zealand last year and it was one of the extraordinary 815-odd new species recorded at the Natural History Museum in London. Richard Collins spoke to Josh Davis, digital news editor at the Natural History Museum, about some of the many and varied species uncovered. Josh, 815 new species of animal discovered by the Natural History Museum in 2023. Now, the romantic image we lay people have of the kind of person who discovers a new species is of a Mary Anning digging away on the Jurassic Coast or, or Russell Wallace slashing his way through bouts of dysentery and malaria through the jungles of New Guinea and sending back the odd specimen to London or whatever. But when is it all gone? Are there some people like that still? Or do new species come now from more elevated, more serene sources? Yeah, so it's actually um, a mix of both, really. There are still definitely people going out there and, um, you know, collecting new specimens from the jungles. I mean, of Costa Rica or um, Central Africa and places like that. That certainly is still um, happening. A lot of the time also, there are a bunch of new species that are simply found still in the collections at the Natural History Museum. You know, there's a moth described this year that had been in the collections since 1886. There are something like 80 million objects in the museum's collections, um, and people definitely haven't gone through all of them. <laughs> so there are still new species turning up all the time um, within, with still like sitting on the drawers and within the collections. Um, so yeah, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a mixture, really. Is it fair to divide this world of yours into lumpers and splitters? Those who like to lump everything together, they don't like to recognise anything new if they can possibly avoid it, and splitters who find clefts in our theory about some species or other and divided into two or three. I'm thinking of something like the pipistrelle bat, for instance. We used to think there were simply pipistrelles. Now, of course, we think of three different kinds of pipistrelle. That, that is a new discovery of species, but sort of half-baked. It's not a real new discovery. It's just an enlightened approach to an existing discovery. Now, to what extent is this new discovery? To what extent are they like that? A bit of both, really. Um, so, for example, I mean, as you're saying, like with the pipistrelle bats, when it comes to mammals, there are obviously a lot fewer species of mammals. Um, and so, by and large, most have been described. So when new species do come up for mammals, often it is, as you're saying, like people splitting what we thought was one species and finding out that actually, you know, perhaps there are half a dozen within that complex. Um, but for things like the insects um, and other groups of animals which are like really sort of highly sort of under um, studied, then most of those are actual new species, really distinct from one another, things that people have just never seen before. And so they're able to sort of give a new name to them and say that this is something completely new and never seen. Well, now, to what extent is this, the concept of species still useful? Isn't there a kind of cline between things? As I look at gulls, for instance, herring gulls, you get a whole range of things that closely resemble herring gulls. There are warblers and things of that kind. To what extent is this rather like a series of islands that are connected by a shallow sea underneath? no longer radically different in the old Noah's Ark way. Yes, this is a topic which I absolutely really love. It's about how do you define a species and how do you describe one? Because you're right, because, you know, when we're talking about species, it's not 
distinct individual things. You know, it is a continuation from one to the next. And when we sort of come to define a species, it's very, to a certain extent, quite arbitrary. You know, it's a human coming in and saying, this is what is one species and this is what another species. And one of my favourite examples of this is that actually when you're talking about across biology as a whole, there's something like 25, 30 different definitions of what a species is. And depending on what sort of type of scientist you're talking to, so whether you're talking to someone who's describing wasps or whether you're talking to someone who's describing plants or someone who's describing dinosaurs, they're all working to different definitions of what a species is because nothing quite maps across the entire tree of life. So to a certain extent, we are just arbitrarily putting things in boxes. But the flip side of that is like, we need to do that because you can't talk about these animals and you can't talk about these species um, without having these def- like definite defined units. And so whilst there is sort of understanding that there's a lot of flex and it is quite arbitrary, it's still a really useful definition and distinction to have so that you can actually talk about, you know, um, a herring gull or a black-headed gull or a greater black-backed gull, you know, rather than talking about gulls in general, you, you can define these individual units, these individual species. Now, of your 815 new species, what stands out? What are the really significant findings in 2023 about speciation? Yeah, I think one of the most significant is the fact that, so out of 815, you know, 619 were wasps. And I think that sort of possibly surprises a lot of people. Um, I think especially in general, people sort of think that maybe beetles are the most speciose group of um, animals, but actually um, most um, entomologists, most people who study insects, um, reckon that it probably is wasps and then followed by flies, interestingly, and beetles will probably come in third. Um, it's just that beetles typically have more people studying them than flies. But yeah, I think the fact that there are so many wasps, there are so many of these sort of critically important species and animals as well. I mean, when we're talking about the wasps, um, we're not talking about what we might think of, um, the, you know, the black and white striped insect that sort of ruins picnics and things like that. Um, but we're talking about tiny, tiny parasitic um, insects that are... Um, often vital for uh, not just sort of ecosystem health, so for forests um, and um, rainforests, but also for agriculture and things like that. Um, So I think the fact that there is just this huge wealth of unknown diversity still waiting to be found, I think that's really exciting um, and quite surprising to most people. Now, one of the wasps you have discovered last year is crucial uh, to uh, people in Africa. I've heard it claimed, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but that uh, this wasp prevents the deaths of 300 lives a year. Is this true? Yeah, and it's to do with um, the species which are, because they're all parasitic um, wasps, so that means that they are um, laying their eggs um, in other insects, typically, um, and then the larvae, the eggs will hatch, and the larvae will eat the insects. Um, and so a lot of these parasitic wasps are really critical to agriculture because they prey on agricultural pests, so things like um, thrips um, and other sort of scientists called true bugs, um, which can devastate crops and can cause like massive crop failure. And so a lot of these small, tiny parasitic wasps, they might not seem like much and they might not seem that important, but they are keeping those agricultural pests under control, which in turn is, you know, saving um, probably millions of people's lives. Yeah. It's a window on the past. These, these findings are a window on the past. You have discovered things about creatures that are no, no longer with us, that are long gone, in fact. Among them is one rather fascinating one, a giant penguin. Surely a giant penguin is a contradiction in terms. You can't really lay eggs and be a giant, or can you? Yeah, absolutely. This is an absolutely brilliant find, actually by 
um, a scientific associate and colleague, uh, Dan Fields, over in the University of Cambridge. Um, it's a species of giant penguin called uh, Kamemanu fordisi. It lived in New Zealand about 57 million years ago, um, and probably, they think, reached about 150 kilograms in weight, which is about three times as heavy as the largest penguin currently alive today, which is the emperor penguin. They only get to about 45 kilos. Um, it evolved sort of quite, quite soon um, after the extinction of the dinosaurs, which I think is super interesting. Um, there's probably something in there about the marine environments are suddenly free, and so these animals can sort of attain bigger sizes and sort of fill those niches. Um, but they weren't also alone, which I think is really interesting and quite exciting. So there was another species of giant penguin described at the same time called Petrodictes, and that reached about 50 kilograms. So whilst it was a lot smaller than Kamehameha, um, it was still, again, bigger than even our biggest penguins today. Penguins seem to be very unhappy in their skin. The ones today want to be whales and dolphins. They don't want to be birds anymore. And here we have a penguin long ago wanting to go even further and become a whale, which is an extraordinary thing. And if you're going to have to haul out and lay an egg, it seems to me a disaster to be as big as that. Marine mammals today, so for example, there are some seals which get to genuinely extraordinary sizes. So you get um, sort of southern elephant seals. They'll reach, you know, in the magnitude of tons heavy, um, especially the big males. Um, and they still obviously manage to hold themselves up onto the beaches and onto the sands. Um, so it's not an unusual situation. It's, it seems to be that um, that transition from obviously like land into water, you know, it's, it's allowing these animals to get big. And if they um, still want to come back and, and lay eggs, you know, a lot of them can do this. You know, even today, um, there are egg-laying marine, um, marine animals. So, for example, a leatherback turtle, they reach about 800 kilos a ton in weight. They're genuinely huge animals. And they still come back onto land and lay eggs. That's all about heat retention, is it? After all, there's no point in being enormous if you want to rush after things and catch them. And if you're in the sea, there's no place to hide if you're a fish. You, you will have to pursue the fish. Uh, now, this is um, seems a strange diversion, a strange way to develop. And the bigger you get, the more difficult it is to catch anything other than huge shoals of krill or something like that. So the penguin was presumably a whale in all but name. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly seeming that way. I mean, I think the the larger animals are. I mean, some of them are so. I mean, like for example, a killer whale is a huge animal, and that's still eating, um, catching active prey and catching things. You know, fast things like seals and and in some places, um, penguins and things like that. It is, I think, a large degree to do with, as you mentioned, heat retention. Um, I think it is also allowing them to eat larger prey as well. So I think, there's a, there's, I think that's what is the main thought at the moment and the reason why they got so big. Josh, that is fascinating. I'd love to go into these things a lot more with somebody with your expertise, but time is marching on. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's pretty much all we have time for tonight. Don't forget the Great Big Garden Bird Watch next Monday from 3pm on RTE Radio 1 with a repeat next Monday night at 10pm. So if you watch birds in your garden or if you've never done it before, go to your window and have a look out and call us in. We'll give out all the details on the day and tell us what you see in your garden. It's a snapshot in time in association with Birdwatch Ireland. My thanks to Richard Collins, Niall Hatch, Aidan Launa, and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is Michelle Brown. Until next week, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) 